0: 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, a passage that will blow our little minds out of the water quite deliberately. And we're going to pick through that in a second, but let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, thank you so much for the grace and privilege of being your disciples today. And we pray that you will elevate us to the status of understanding your word today and living under its power. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have the mind of Christ. Extraordinary summary to this passage, isn't it? Now, you've got to remember the context that's going on in Corinth to get anything like a handle on this. Do you remember who Paul's been dealing with in Corinth? Do you remember what the situation's like? It is a place full of people who think that they are, as a word beginning with W, The wise, the wise ones, people who think that they're wise. They would stand up in the markets and they would do wonderful speeches full of eloquent reasoning and rhetoric. Wise. And one of the great criticisms that Paul's having to deal with as he writes this letter is, Paul, you're this little guy, balding, middle-aged, fatting, a bit of spread going on there. You're not really as wise or as clever as the other people we've got going for us. We can flick over onto Five Live on our radio, (laughs) and it sounds better than you on the London-owned station. (laughs) Are you sure that you've got what it takes to be the wise one here and last week, Dennis was looking at the wisdom of human beings versus the wisdom of God. And he was talking about how God's wisdom is, is so wise, we can't even get close to it. And even what might be seen as God's foolishness is way wiser than our, our wisdom. And, and he culminated that passage in, in saying, look, God chooses foolish things to shame the wise. You, you might not have been a great intellect before you came to christ but god calls you you may not be a a great rhetorician in a in a greek marketplace but god calls people that he can work with people generally who have enough of a weakness that god can get in there and show his glory through but This week, Paul is going to explain to us and to the Corinthians that he's not conceding the ground, though. It's not just that God chooses weak people um, to shame the wise, and, and therefore we're left not as clever as those doing their documentaries on Channel 4 or something like that. Instead, what we have is a totally different quality of wisdom that we're able to access than the human rhetoricians are able to access today. So here we are in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now this is probably the verses that C.S. Lewis had in mind when he was writing his Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story. And do you remember Aslan's on the stone table, the Christ figure of the story, uh, and according to the deep magic, he has to die because he's taken the place of a traitor, and a traitor must pay with blood for their crimes. Aslan, the Lion, the Christ figure, has taken the place of Edmund, the traitor, and lies there on the table. But what the White Witch, the satanic figure of the book doesn't know is there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time and this is what Paul's saying there is secret wisdom in the economy of God which is so special has been so hidden that no mind or ear or or eye has seen heard or conceived what God has got in store for us no one who's been around has understood this stuff If they had understood it, they would never have killed Jesus. Why? Because killing Jesus was the ultimate backfiring tactical move of an enemy who since then has been utterly defeated. Killing Jesus was the ultimate backfiring tactical mood of an enemy who since then has been defeated. If they knew that killing Aslan on the stone table would result in him coming back to life again the next morning... And leading an army to a tumultuous victory that would vanquish the white witch, they would never have killed him on the stone table. If they knew a sucker punch was coming, if the people who put Jesus on the cross had understood that as the teardrop falls from heaven and causes an earthquake on the ground, in Mel Gibson's amazing analogy in The Passion of the Christ, and Satan is vanquished down to the place that one day for eternity he will spend his his time in in a lake of fire, then Satan would never have provoked the cross to the point of the death of the one who was going to rise again. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So point one in this passage is God has a whole wisdom that is far wiser than anyone's God. And it is knowable we are able to speak it to those who can cope with understanding these mysteries. For others, all we'll say is the cross, Christ crucified. But if you've got a bit deeper with God, there are places you can go to and things you can begin to understand. Because the point of the cross isn't just to save you, it's to do something far more profound with you. And that's what the next half of this passage is going to be about. What do you think God has saved you for in this life? Have you, have you ever thought about that question? What's God rescued you and redeemed you for? Maybe it's to, for heaven, for eternity, to fit you with heaven, to be with him there, to fill up and populate his eternity. And that, That's part of it. He wants you to be there. Maybe it's that you can have life in all its fullness now and enjoy his incredible creation that he's made for you to be stewards of. Uh, And that's part of it. Life in all its fullness now. Cake on the plate while you wait. And pie in the sky when you die. They're both (laughs) ants. But... That's how Dennis got the job, everyone. If you're listening online, the Curates and Hysterics, uh, one of the oldest jokes ever, so that, that, that's, that's why we employed him. <laughs> it makes me feel better about myself. But neither of those things are the real heart of what God wanted when he came to earth in Christ. It wasn't just that he wanted to rescue us and stick us in his heaven, and it wasn't just that he wanted us to have life in all its fullness now. There was something more fundamental than that that the Spirit testifies to. Commission. Great commission. <laughs> Not even evangelism. That's another wonderful thing. Okay. Something even more fundamental in the heart of God. Did you hear what Paul was saying about the, the Spirit, a man's Spirit knowing his mind? Uh, In Inside all of us is our, our you know, thoughts going on in our heads. But something even deeper in us sort of goes. I'm not sure that's really your thought, Richard. Is that is there's that, is something in me that knows my mind? It's sort of separate to my mind, and it's the very essence of who I am. It's the very core of me. There is something that evaluates all the stuff that's going on, and I go, "Actually, that really wasn't me. <laughs> that was a temptation. That was a thing. That was not me in my right mind." It knows my mind. It evaluates my mind, but it's beyond just my thinking. I'm more than just a cognate being, a thinking thinking animal. I have a spirit within me that is the very essence of who I am. And this passage says, God also has a spirit within him, uh, parallel to ours, which is the very essence of who he is. It understands us. It knows us. It knows God. And we have received, have gained access to God through the Spirit of God. The thoughts of God become in us. A man who hasn't got God's Spirit doesn't accept these things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And a spiritual man makes judgment about all things because he's not subject to any man's judgment. There's something going on if you have the Holy Spirit in you where you're like, I've just got access to God in an incredible way. And you know, the thing that God wanted for you, more than to get you into heaven, more than to utilize you as a missionary or give you life in all its fullness now, the thing he most deeply wanted for you was the very thing he first did to humanity right in the very beginning, which was to kneel down beside us and breathe into us, life. He wanted life for us. His life flowing through our veins, giving us an incredible harmony with him, which completes us in a way beyond any other relationship possibly could do, and gives him joy as a generous giver in a way that no gift he received could possibly give. The Spirit of God is God's gift to us. We couldn't have it as freely as we have it now until Jesus had gone up to the Father. I don't actually know why. (laughs) But Jesus had to ascend to the Father before he and the Father together could send the Spirit to us, to live with us, to dwell with us, to be with us always, in us, and we in him. An analogy of that is, imagine... You've got a cup, and you fill this cup, this beautiful cup, up to the brim uh, with water. And then you place this cup full of water in an ocean of the same water. And that's a bit what it's like to have Jesus in you and to be in Jesus as well. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you are in Christ, part of this great sea of his incredible spirit. His spirit lives in you, and you are in the spirit. It's an extraordinary thing. This is what God wanted for us, for humanity, that we could be with him. And all the cleverness that humanity can get to on its own, apart from that cup filled with water, apart from being in the ocean, just from the 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 vague memories of being in the image of God and the creativity that we have innate in our nature because we are made in his image through our science, through our creativity, through all these things, all the wisdom that we can accumulate on the one hand over here, even the cleverest person who accumulates things or the most gifted artist or the most amazing musician, they can only have a handful of it compared to the superabundance of the ocean of wisdom available through the Spirit of God. One man only walked around on earth with undiluted access to this body of extraordinary wisdom. One man only walked in harmony with this Spirit of God step by step, speaking truth and bringing life wherever he went. One man only did all those things perfectly. But we have the mind of Christ. Mind-blowing, eh? The ocean, the cup in the ocean, it's all available to us corporately, together, through the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? It means so many different things. It means as a church, you could go away on a corporate vision seeking retreat and use post it notes and flip charts and colored pencils and spotty dots and focus groups and have great guest speakers and come up with something very clever. But in the next moment, you might be kneeling at the end of that session on your knees. In a silent 20 minutes. And having done all the clever thinking that you could get to. Kneeling before the Father. Him unlocking the wisdom he'd already put into you corporately. With a prophetic revelation of. Now walk in this way, go for him. That happened to the Apostle Paul himself. A great missionary strategy to go all over the place. Going from one major city to the next one. And then he has a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Happened to St. Peter, who knew that he was the apostle to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. And then he has a vision of a, a sheep coming down from heaven filled with unclean things. This says, take and eat it. Everything changes. We have the mind of Christ. It changes how we lead a church. Because the only really important thing is that we've heard from God and we're therefore obedient to whatever he's saying. However clever and corporately we can discern things, that we know that we've heard from God. It matters to me in my life, in my personal life, in my ethical, moral life. I I can go to all the A-level classes on religious education and ethics or go to lectures or do the University of the Third Age and do a course on contemporary lifestyle. and think my way around all sorts of situations. But then I get to my bedroom and I open the book of God up, and the words leap out at me, and I go, whoa, this is different to what I discerned in that room, but this is life. And I choose life. The word is alive, it speaks to me. It matters in my family life. Where the wisdom of this age might be to make sure you're protecting yourself from that person that you're living near to in community or that person that you're in family with or that sibling who might inherit more than you. And you think, oh, how can I protect myself? And then you remember the words that you say in this service, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you think, actually, I'm going to lay down my rights. And it's not about rights, it's about saying, Here I am, I'm available. The mind of Christ surpasses everything that the greatest philosophers have even glimpsed. It's beautiful, it's glorious. It's incredible. And you, and you, and you, and you, and I, and we have the mind of Christ. Hallelujah. And just for the record, that's why from the 5th of November to the 3rd of December, we're having 28 days of prayer and fasting and however else you want to respond to it. Because above all things in this church family, we want to know the mind of Christ as we keep trying to push on in these things. And what you pray for and what you hear from God in those 28 days are absolutely critical to that journey of faith that we're going to take together. It's ours together. And God will speak to us as we humble ourselves and pray. So let's look forward to that month together from the 5th of November to the 3rd of December, 28 days of prayer and fasting and breakthrough. Amen.